Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. And welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Scott Allender. He is an expert in global leadership and organizational development. He co-hosts the Evolving Leader podcast. And in this conversation, we're talking about his brand new book, Enneagram of Emotional Intelligence, A Journey to Personal and Professional Success. He regularly teaches Enneagram workshops and conducts typing interviews and emotional intelligence assessments for not only individuals, but also teams that want to become more self-aware and more cognizant of the impact that they have on the world and level up their ability to do that. And in this conversation, that's what we do. We break down the Venn diagram of the Enneagram and emotional intelligence, each one of those individually, and then go to the center of that Venn diagram and talk about how using both the Enneagram and emotional intelligence and this book, you can become much more self-aware, increase your self-expression, and chart a better path and journey to personal and professional success. And you don't need to be somebody who's familiar with either the Enneagram or emotional intelligence in order to get something out of this conversation that is very clear. We do a little bit of a primer on both of those, then dive a little bit deeper. So I'll get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Scott Allender. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Scott Allender. Scott, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I got to say, I'm thrilled to finally have somebody back on the show to talk at least partially about the Enneagram. It's been a while. And speaking of which, last person that came on and talked explicitly or specifically about it was Ian Cron, who I know Uh-oh. wrote the inter- – yeah, that is trouble. Uh, <laughs> That's a tough act to follow. Yes. Uh, but it's been a while. So, But uh, he wrote the foreword for your new book, The Enneagram of Emotional Intelligence, A Journey to Personal and Professional Success. Love that title. Love the topic. And for people who have never taken the time to dive into the Enneagram, I'm curious, how do you describe it to somebody who's like, oh, you talk about the Enneagram? What is that? 
I'm just going to throw it out there. The Enneagram almost sounds like pentagram, which makes you think of like Satan worship, which it's not. Yeah. So, or angiogram or there you something go. weird. Yeah. 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 So the Enneagram is a, is a sense making system. It's a map of nine personality archetypes and how they relate to one another. And what sets it apart from other systems is, you know, where other typologies might look at your preferences or um, even how people might experience you. The Enneagram is much more concerned with why you do what you do. So the journey with the Enneagram is all about getting connected to often unconscious motivations that drive our behaviors and that get us stuck in repetitive patterns of thinking and feeling and doing that are all part of these sort of personality archetypes that we form. And it looks at personality largely through the lens of an adapted strategy for getting our needs met as a young person. So we contain all nine of these Enneagram types, but we over identify with one because of our lived experience and genetics and epigenetics play a role too. But we have this lived experience and one of these Enneagram types became our survival strategy and our coping strategy and kind of the way that we said, okay, this is how I'll make sense of the world. This is how I'll get love. This is how I'll feel connection. This is how I'll feel safe. I love that you stated that we really have all nine as part of us, but it's, you know, which one we really lean into as, you know, our coping mechanism. And I think that definitely kind of points out one of the other things that sticks with me is I am a five. And how I knew that was because of all of the numbers of all the types, fives unhealthy attributes were definitely what I could identify with. And that's kind of, you know, what it means. And then when I saw when I was leaning into being healthy and taking my fiveness into a healthy versus non-healthy, I could recognize, nope, when I'm doing my best, when I'm at my best, it seems to come out that way as well. I'm not sure. I know for you, I think if I've heard right, it took you a while to identify your type as well. It did. Do you know your subtype by chance? That's a good question. I think that I have wavered on it a little bit here and there. So I'm, I don't know that I have any accuracy per se. Okay. Well, that, that's what was a struggle for me. So ultimately I identify as a three, but it's a special kind of three, not special in the, in the sense <laughs> that like it's better, but there's three different subtypes for each type. And it has to do with these dominant survival instincts. So we all have a self-preservation instinct, which is all about how do I keep my body safe? Do I have shelter? Do I have food? Do I have water? Do I have these kinds of things? We have a social instinct, which is all about what is my standing in the group? Or if you go back to like survival in the Serengeti, you know, if I run in the middle of the herd, I probably have less chance of getting picked off by the lion. And it has to do with that orientation. And then we've got the one-to-one survival instinct, which is all about my survival through creation and procreation and important one-to-one relationships. So all of these instincts are meant to be in perfect harmony and perfect balance within us. And they just sort of turn on and turn off as we need them. So You hear rustling in the leaves, you run and then decide later whether or not it's the wind or a lion and you don't wait to find out, right? It's this instinct. Now, for animals, you can watch those instincts turn on and turn off without seemingly without any memory of it. Us as humans are far more complicated. And so we have these lived experiences where one of those instinctual survival needs weren't getting met. And so we kind of turn up the volume on it. And we end up kind of having this one dominant instinct that's always on, even when we don't need it to be on. And it kind of takes energy from the others. And you end up with this sequence where you have like, so for me, I have a dominant self-preservation instinct. 
supported by a one-to-one instinct, and then I repress my social instinct. So all of that backstory to say, this is why it was hard for me to find my type, because when you hear threes describe, you basically hear the social three described. It's the one that always wants to be in the limelight and center stage and to make the toast and have the attention and have the accolades and all those things motivated by a need to perform and achieve and impress you. Now, that motivation is common for all threes, but as a self-preservation dominant, I would read about that and I would say, yeah, but that's not me because I don't feel safe doing that. I actually don't want the limelight. I don't want to be center stage. I do kind of want your praise and approval and to impress you, but I kind of want to do it from behind the scenes and a little more quietly. So until like sort of 10 months into really studying it, I came across uh, Beatrice Chestnut's description of the self-preservation three. And I was like, okay, finally, that's it. And then then I went all in, drank the Kool-Aid and never looked back. Well, now that you've said that, I'm starting to remember some conversations that I had with a fellow five where we were comparing our Mm. kind of modality in terms of how we, you know, use that and lean into that. And I remember uh, both of us really saying something along the lines of having a lot of social aspect to our fiveness, which if you're familiar with five, you know that they often are a retreating person going into their research and their hoarding of knowledge and their dissecting of things. And so it can come across as very oppositional, potentially, or off-putting and or retreating or, you know, oh, man, why aren't you spending time with us as a family and other things like that? (laughs) But I very much enjoy spending time with people. I am definitely an introvert, but that doesn't mean I'm not outgoing. It's just that I need to recharge by myself. And that also kind of bolsters my fiveness. Yeah, yeah. You still go up into your mind to process and make Mm -hmm. sense of things and to analyze things, but you've got that social dominance. So you're definitely not as withdrawing as somebody that would be a self-preservation five would be a very withdrawing type. So, yeah. And that's when you start to see all the different shades, which, by the way, for me, gives much more evidence of efficacy to the system because, yes, nine core types. But when you start looking at there's three variations of each, that's really 27 different types. And if you actually do factor in these repressed instincts, which is more masterclass stuff, you end up with these sort of like 54 different shades of people. And it's complex, but that's why I think it has teeth, because people are complex and it's trying to get to that level of nuance to understand the differences. So yeah, you could hang out with three different kinds of fives and you guys experience life very differently, share the same core motivation, but different presentations of it based on your, your subtype. Well, I'm glad to hear that you say that because as I started to study it more and over the years that I've been familiar with it, I I think it's been 2015, something like that around there was when I first heard of it from a friend and he was showing me, a book and I know it's a well-known book and I'm, I'm blanking on it. I can see it in my head, but anyways, <laughs> but point being, I thought to myself, well, but how true is this? And I've heard others echo that, but the more I studied it, the more I identified and analyzed myself through it. And the more I kind of pulled in some of what I learned about myself and, you know, again, flipping the switch of, okay, that's what unhealthy looks like. This is what healthy looks like. Can we try moving that way? Like, for example, one of the things that I found very helpful is fives are in their head a lot. And to be healthy, you get out of your head and into your body. And the more that I get into my body, actually something I brought up recently because Gretchen Rubin was just on the show talking about her book, The Five Senses. And I thought this is almost a manual for a five to practice their five senses and get into their body and get out of their head right. and become more healthy. So, yeah. yeah. 
Now that's great. That's great to hear. And that's, and that is, that is an often challenge, which by the way, gives people, and this is true of all types, but stay with the five for a minute. It gives people sometimes a wrong experience or impression of you, right? Because the tendency to go up into the mind and to make sense of the world through thinking can give the appearance that you aren't wanting to be connected with them or you're kind of withdrawn or not really present. But the truth is fives are incredibly sensitive. In fact, part of the reason fives go up into their minds is because of their sensitivity. They're a deeply sensitive person. And until you know a system like the Enneagram, you misjudge people because you don't understand that about, in this case, the five, for example. Have you had that experience where you feel misunderstood in your fiveness? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And in fact, I'm thinking of my uncle who was much more quiet and much more heady than me, but still had this very like sharp wit and humor to him and, you know, definitely not antisocial. And so it's like, you know what? I different flavor of five, I guess. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I can't confirm that for sure that he has that, that that's what he is, but that's my high suspicion. Or it could be a six. Sixes are very heady and very witty. They can be really, really funny. So yeah, I don't know. But yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good assumption to hang out around there. Sounds like a head type for sure. Yeah, definitely. So, okay. So we've taken a little bit of time here to kind of unpack the Enneagram a little bit as a refresher course, so to speak. You know, it's funny because the Enneagram is visually, you know, it's got, it's, if you look at a diagram of it, it's got nine points and I love to see things visually laid out. The other thing I really love is Venn diagrams. So I'm thinking of the circle, one circle being Enneagram. And then obviously the other piece and title of your book is emotional intelligence or EQ and And I'm curious, for people who don't know what that is, let's do a little refresher debrief on what that means. And then let's go to the center of the Venn diagram and connect them. All right. I like it. So emotional intelligence, widely studied, not widely understood in my experience. So it's typically at a high level. You might describe it as, you know, self-awareness, self-management, awareness of others and effective relationship management. That's sort of like a a quadrant model. And if you zoom into that, you'll see things like empathy and self-regulation and these kinds of things. But it's all very kind of nebulous when you read these descriptions. And in my experience, when I and I've been an emotional intelligence coach for some time and I've taught workshops and things. And in fact, I was having this conversation just yesterday with a friend of mine, Dr. Rob Murray, who just wrote a book called Fighting for Heart. And he's looking at emotional intelligence and the experience of emotions as well from a non-Enneagram perspective. And we were both talking about how, you know, when you ask people, do you want more emotional intelligence? They all kind of raise their hands. You say, can you define it? And they kind of mumble and don't really know how to define it. And then you say, what are you doing to cultivate it? And nobody's doing anything. And meanwhile, we've got all this research. And part of what sparked this book was doing the work of emotional intelligence which is, in my view, helping people really to get more connected to what it is they're feeling, what those feelings are telling them, how to get curious about those emotions, how to question those emotions, and how to get information from all of that experience. And it also includes bodily awareness and the quality of our thoughts, which we can come back to in a second. But I was doing all this work and doing reports with people and coaching them and all that. And kind of not feeling like we were getting super far. And then also simultaneously reading all this research that both points to how important emotional intelligence is. So in a business context, sort of 70 to 75% of a reason a leader will succeed or fail is directly attributed to emotional intelligence measures. The cornerstone of which is this idea of awareness, self-awareness, 
And all this research was being published saying, but only like 10 to 15% of people are truly self-aware. So we're having gobs and gobs of information coming at us saying, this is what matters in the middle is, but I don't really understand what that means. Nobody's really doing anything to cultivate it. And then the result is nobody has any more awareness. So for me, I wanted to marry the two systems because nothing has been more transformative for me to start to understand things about myself that were deep in the shadows of my awareness, things I didn't know, things I didn't know I didn't know, things I didn't want to know, like all back in there, all kind of, you know, under the waterline of consciousness. And I'm thinking this is the problem is that we're getting really rational and logical with emotional intelligence. We're putting overlaying these frameworks and these sense making systems. And we're saying, okay, here's how you show up. You need a little bit more of this, dial that to the right. You need a little less of this and you do a little bit more of this. And then suddenly people will experience you as more emotionally intelligent and people try and they might do it for a time, but then stress and pressure come and, you know, default tendencies kick right back in because people at a fundamental level often don't know why they do what they do. You know, we run on autopilot most of the time. You know, it's a gift of our brains that we can form these habits that allow us to drive to work without having to think about driving and talk on the phone and do all these other things. It also works against us because our whole lives become a bit automated. So I wanted to marry it up and say, I think the way we get to emotional intelligence, which has been, you know, like I said, studied extensively, continues to be studied, and is pretty compelling in its importance, we need to put aside the logical approach. We need to go deep into our subconscious areas to find out what's the reason I wear this mask of personality. Why do I over-identify with this type? What's the story behind the core fear of that type that fuels so much of the motivation? All of those kinds of things. We need to get in there if we have any chance to actually cultivate and sustain this stuff called emotional intelligence. I mean, I think, I guess it just occurred to me as I was thinking this, as you were talking, you know, I, I think that the way that you marry these two things together or overlap them or integrate them is probably the best way to put it is that you've got two kind of systems, two kind of, you know, approaches that aren't discongruent. In fact, they're congruent completely because of the way that, that EQ, that emotional intelligence has, as you put it in the book, five essential skills. And I'll get to you in a second. The way that, Adding the EQ to the Enneagram makes the Enneagram more practical and less theoretical, which is a kind of an, an obstacle for a lot of people when they first hear about it and are trying to type themselves or decipher, you know, what their type is. Right. And they find out and they think, oh, yeah, that's me. And then they think, okay, yeah, this makes sense. I can do something with this, but only to a point. Your new book is essentially the missing manual for the Enneagram to oh. unlock it and make it more practical in a way that it just wasn't there for a lot of people before. Hmm. Well, thank you for saying that. That's really flattering. I appreciate that. And that that is the attempt, you know, make it make it actionable. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent 
fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you enjoy Beyond the To-Do List, I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans. I'm Sarah Hart Unger, the host of Best Laid Plans, a podcast devoted to all things planning and planning adjacent. I talk about everything from paper planner reviews to deep dives into all things productivity, from keeping track of goals and tasks to fitting in your true priorities and reducing the stress around planning and organizing across different areas of life. I am a practicing physician and mother of three, so I have a lot going on in my own life and I'm intimately familiar with the time constraints that impact us all. And I love sharing my own productivity strategies and learning from others who have their own ideas to share. I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans, available on all podcast platforms, or visit my website, theshoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X.com, to learn more. So I mentioned you say in the book, there's these five essential skills of emotional intelligence. And again, I, I love these because they kind of call out some of what was appealing to me, especially as a, a five and a theory, you know, fives are people who really love to jump into the Enneagram because that's all about what we are. We want to pick something up and then study it and dissect it to death quietly in the in the brain and then also talk about it too. But um, there are five different things. Do you want to maybe spell out what those are and maybe yeah. do a quick brief uh, you know, rundown of those for us? Sure, sure. So in the system I use, we look at self-perception. So this is about how do I see myself? And I go pretty deep into this idea. This is the first of the five in the book and present that because we each have a dominant Enneagram type, it's limiting our vision in some ways to sort of one ninth of a field of possibilities. So we've got these nine different perspectives. We're sort of stuck in one vantage point, sort of looking at life from the same angle over and over again. And so we look at ourselves through that storied filter as well. So for any Enneagram type, we kind of start on this premise that we don't see ourselves accurately. And then the next measure is self expression. So how we see ourselves is inextricably linked to how we express ourselves. So I build on that correlation. And then we move on to interpersonal relationships. So we do a big deep dive on how each Enneagram type, now that we understand the ways we do and do not see each ourselves accurately and how that leads to often unwanted or, or just automated kind of reactive self-expression habits that then plays into the quality of our interpersonal relationships. And if we don't see ourselves accurately and we're kind of living life on the surface, kind of at a distance from ourselves, which is what the Enneagram kind of points us to, our relationships are lacking. So this is like, what is our opportunity to build? And this is kind of the most important of the measures to me, because I think life is fundamentally about relationships, right? If there's one reason that, you know, people hopefully will be motivated to dig into this and do this work is for intimacy, for, you know, for, for connection. And we know we, we need to be connected with one another. And if we're living far from ourselves, which until we do this work, we are, then the quality of our intimacy suffers. The quality of our relationship suffers. And then we move on to decision-making. So how each Enneagram type 
makes decisions. We talked a little bit about head types, right? And I'm a three, which is part of the what's known as the heart types, twos, threes, and fours. And then there's the body types, eights, nines, and ones. And wherever you are in one of those triads, you start with your decision-making, trying to use either logic and ration, rationale or gut instinct and sort of sensing or feeling and emotion, right? And those are all good things, but we tend to use that dominant drive no matter what the situation is. And we need to learn how to reintegrate all three of those intelligences so we can incorporate a wider view and take in all the information available to us to make good decisions. And then the final one, which became the longest chapter in the book, which is all about how do we understand and deal with stress? Like what are, what are the stress default sort of stress mechanisms and our tendencies to fall prey to certain types of stressors based on our Enneagram type and what could we do with that? The title of the chapter is called stress management because that's what the system calls it. I don't care for that term. I know what people are intending by it, but it just doesn't feel like the right description because stress isn't something that can just merely be managed. But I think we need to grow a greater capacity for coping with the stressors that come into our lives. And I think the, the book gives a lot of suggestions on how you might do that. See, and for me, as I hear you talk about those different pieces, I kind of see those visually connecting to each other as well when it's, mm. so follow me here in your head, as I'm a five, um, <laughs> paint the picture in your head. So self-perception is- Can you draw you know, it on a chart? Do you have a, do you kind of a flip chart or something you can do, use? Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> So self-perception is essentially, for me, another word or another code word for awareness, self-awareness. And it's, and, and, you know, knowing yourself, but knowing yourself is only one piece of it. And that's kind of, and, and see, that's kind of where, you know, not to poo-poo the Enneagram, but that's kind of where it feels for a lot of people, it stops. It's self-awareness and nothing much more. Whereas then you add self-expression, which is, okay, how to express yourself. You know, it's not just knowing yourself, but it's then being yourself expression wise. And the two of those for me kind of go hand in hand as your interpersonal relationship with yourself first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And then you can, once you're good at, well, not, not once you're good at those, we're all practicing all the time, but those two pieces, self-perception, self-expression integrated into interpersonal relationships then means you have healthier relationships because you're f more fully being yourself. And then where the other two pieces come in, obviously decision-making is one of those things where if we're on autopilot all the time, we're not really making intentional decisions. We're just kind of default decision-making, which is not always the best place to be operating out of, especially when here's the fifth one, you know, when stress comes into the situation, which seems like that's a constant at this point, yeah. Then it's where do you go? What do you do? And if you're not, if you don't have all the other ones in place first or at all, if you don't have any self-perception, when stress comes into the mix, you're not thinking in terms of, wait, who am I and how am I best operate? You know, how am I best equipped to handle this? You have poor self-expression and poor relationships and, and poor yeah. decision making. And so they all kind of fold in on each other. So. They do. They do. And it's not, yeah, it, they do build in that way. And then at the same time, what's also true is that it's not solely linear as you're, as you're referencing, right? To pick up on your last point, if we suddenly become overwhelmed by stress, 
everything starts to unravel, right? How we see ourselves, each other, our relationships, making decisions, all of it becomes problematic, right? And so, or if our, if the quality of our relationship starts to fall apart, we might suddenly backtrack on progress we made in seeing ourselves with more self-compassion and understanding because maybe we're blaming ourselves too much for something that's gone wrong in the relationship. So it's about becoming really conscious of the interplay of all five of these and how our types default mechanisms have strengths and, you know, not so good parts in terms of how, how they show up. And so then obviously not just going into nine types, but what was it? You said like 27, but not just yeah. that, like 50 something. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Don't worry. I don't do that in the book because yeah, I yeah. got too unwieldy. <laughs> well, and that, and that's kind of getting where I'm going here is someone who has, you know, maybe they're listening to this for the first time and they've never heard or they've in passing heard terms Enneagram, the terms emotional intelligence and EQ. Can they come to this book and have this be the starting point for one or both of those things, especially because you're integrating them into each other? And like I said, making it more practical. That was the intention. I remember when I was first talking with potential publishers, they said, who's it for? Is it for Enneagram experts or novices? I said, yes. And they say, you know, is it for somebody that really understands emotional intelligence or doesn't? I said, yes. I wrote it with the intention of you can know nothing about either of these. And I think you'll be pulled into it and be able to understand what we're talking about and get something meaningful out of it. And hopefully, even if you have quite a bit of exposure and experience with either of those systems, you'll get something new and fresh out of it. Okay, so here's the part where I think maybe might be helpful to somebody, especially if there are five. What do you say to me, a five who starts reading the book and you you say, oh, I noticed you're reading my book. What do you think of it? What are you getting out of it? Like, what are the questions, the standard questions or, you know, what's the dialogue you start with someone like me in terms of making sure I'm learning slash getting the most out of it. Hmm. I would probably just start by asking you what you're wanting to get out of it. So you started the book. What were you hoping to get out of it? Anything in particular? So I'll be honest. So, so I'm in that spectrum of, I wouldn't call myself an Enneagram expert. I would say I'm not a beginner either. I would say I was probably 45, 50, 60, somewhere in that range of, you know, I've studied it and maybe a little higher than that. I don't know, but only got so far in terms of applicability, as you can see from the, the language I've used previous uh, in this conversation. And so, I thought, oh, you know, emotional intelligence, that's another, that, that's an aspect. And then when I started to dive into the book and understand what you meant by that and, you know, what that looks like, especially because in the subtitle, you're talking not just personal, you, you also have professional. So it's personal and professional. That's almost work life balance, you know, in my head and something we've tackled on this show before. That's kind of where I'm coming at it from is like, okay, you know what? What's some extra, not just extra, but what, what's the next step in my, not just Enneagram growth and journey, but my personal and professional journey in terms of, can I deepen my self-awareness? And funny enough, can I deepen my self-expression and relationships? That's kind of where I came from. Yeah. And that's where I would probably hone in for a five. I would ask, you know, of these five measures, what matters most to you? Knowing that probably a lot of fives would say, I get misunderstood or I have challenges in my self-expression. I sometimes don't insert myself quite enough and speak up enough. 
Or when I do, I might be a little too analytical and lose people in the conversation, which is sometimes what fives report. And I would ask you about the quality of your interpersonal relationships. Is there something in there that you would want to see changed or improved or deepened? And that would be like if we were sitting down and having kind of a coaching conversation around using this tool. But you already hit on something that most fives take a long time to come to, which is I got to get out of my head and into my heart and my body. So you said body, which is absolutely true, right? And then how do you open up the heart center? Because again, fives are naturally quite sensitive. And part of the reason the over-identification with thinking and analysis is a way to stay at a distance from the heart because there is such a sensitivity to it that fives fear being overwhelmed by emotion. So there's this, you know, you'll often see fives go off and process their feelings from a distance and then maybe talk about them later. You know, I know fives in my life that'll come and share some feelings they had about something that happened between us three days ago, right? But not in the moment was hard for them to experience it because it felt overwhelming. And so part of the work with the five then is how can you start to try to open up your heart to experience feelings in real time? And the book talks about that as well for for the fives. And each of the nine types have a struggle with you know, one or more of those three centers of intelligence. And so, yeah, I think, and then I also offer non-type specific growth practices towards the end of the book where these are common to everyone. Here's some things you can do and try to, again, try to integrate all three of those centers because, for example, decision-making, you know, feelings are at play, even though we over-identify all of us, regardless of our type, right? We tend to think of good decision-making as being purely rational and purely logical. And all that means is that you're not really conscious of how much emotions are at play here and influencing the way you're thinking. You're not conscious yet of what your body's telling you and those sensory signals that are coming up that's influencing your thinking, right? So for example, I use an example in the book about, it was way back in 2011, but there was this study of judges in Israel who were seeing people up for parole. And before 10 a.m., the average rate of people being granted parole is around 66%. And then after 10 a.m., it starts to fall off terribly and people barely are getting a chance to get paroled, regardless of the case, unless that judge had a mid-morning snack, like an apple or a banana or something. And then the rates go right back up to 66%. That's a perfect case study in a judge who I'm sure thought they were being just as rational and just as fair as they were before they got hungry, as they were when they got hungry, but just disconnected from what their body was telling them. Their body was under-resourced. It was creating an emotional experience that informed decision-making to the detriment of somebody's very freedom So we look at a lot of those kinds of cases in the book where we have to be connected to all three of these things. And the Enneagram doesn't just describe your personality or describe where you're stuck. It gives you a map, essentially, of how you travel the Enneagram. The Enneagram is, you know, the the interconnectedness is because as we learn more about our type, we then can leverage our wings, which is the number to the left and the right of us, to create more balance and more optionality. And then we've got these lines across to other numbers. And there's this way to kind of start working with the whole system to reintegrate all of these centers and get more connected to what's going on in our bodies and in our hearts and in our heads. Yeah. I I think that, uh, you know, I I think somewhere else that I can call out that I've become healthier is definitely in the heart when it comes to, you know, it used to be a, nope, not going to cry while watching this movie. Hold it in. Don't let anybody that you're sitting (laughs) with see it happening. And now it's much more like, 
oh my gosh, like, which is way more my daughter. Like I can be watching something or I, I can come across, I can tell you right now, <laughs> this is the first time I've ever said this. When I'm on Instagram, I will find something that has to do with an, an animal and I will save it to show my daughter later because I can tell you right now, as I'm watching it, I can pinpoint in my head right when she's going to make the <laughs> noise and it often happens. So, so she and I can be what she's almost about to graduate uh, high school and I, and she, so she's, we're spending a lot of time together and we're watching movies and shows and things. And, you know, for example, we'll watch an, an episode of Ted Lasso and there's two soccer, sorry, football players. One is giving a hug to another and it's a very, pivotal and emotional and powerful moment and i hear her making her noise and in the meantime like okay i she's kind of calling out where she's at and it's almost gotten under my skin or under my armor is a better way to put it in a good way where it's like okay no she's in an emotional place right now i'm more free to do that myself and you know even my son who's five seven years younger than her like dad's crying and i'm like so doesn't matter. It's a good thing. And, you know, it's, it's to the it, point of getting there, you know, and being okay with it. Do you find, I think it's beautiful. Do you find that it's easier for you to connect to those feelings and, and maybe cry through other characters, through animal pictures, through story, through movies? I think it definitely helps. <laughs> Versus the, the sat. So like, what, like, tell me how you're feeling about your daughter graduating. See, there you go. Like, I keep telling myself, no, I'm good with this. Like, I'm not going to, it's not the end of the world. Like, she's not going to be farther than half hour away and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it is what it is. But I think that there, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not being truthful, but I don't think I'm being completely untruthful. That's for sure. I think there's a, you're not being untruthful, but that's not surprising to hear you say that because you're explaining it. Right. You're explaining your feelings that you're explaining away the experience of it. And, and I'm, this is not, this is, this is said with love, 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 love. <laughs> right. But that description is, is what you're struggling with is, is well, not struggle, but what you're, where you're going to is up into the head to describe what's going to happen and how it'll be okay versus where the real opportunity, the real work would be to just connect with the deep emotions of probably pride and sadness and just feel it right without going to explanation is that is that a harder endeavor for you you know as you're talking about it and as i'm thinking about it like i'm not like welling up with tears in front of a microphone here but there's definitely feeling there's a feeling there's a heart there's something going on in my heart man and so yeah let it let it i think that's (laughs) and that's what the summer is going to be for really and i think me just saying that out loud too is one of those things where it's like "Mm, let's get past graduation let's like confirm this is going to happen first off in a way and then <laughs> we'll deal with the aftermath and the path forward so but yeah again that's why i feel like this book is is definitely a a way to move forward for a lot of people that are just they are unequipped they have not been th- these skills are not developed especially again especially the emotional intelligence side of things here and i think there's a lot of value here in the book for people who, again, like you, I think you even said it when you first were describing emotional intelligences. It's, it's something people kind of have heard of and have passed by and it's vague. It's nebulous. They don't really understand it. They don't know how to practically apply it. I think that's a lot of what's here. And I don't want anybody to get hung up on the, you know, previous misconception of that or the Enneagram or both of them combined. I think you're again, dissecting is probably not the best word 
breaking it down, maybe a better, closer vernacular to it, but approachability, you're, you're making it approachable, both these things mm. and letting it for whatever baggage or, or you know, again, you know, misconceptions, ultimately anybody can walk in to this book and find a skill set really and methodology and skill set to be able to really become not just closer and more aware of themselves and their relationships, but to really succeed personally and professionally more than they ever have with head, heart, and body. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. You're, you're very kind. So I definitely would be remiss if I didn't call out that you also have your own podcast, the Evolving Leader Podcast. Uh, let's talk about that for a second, and then let's tell people where they can go find out more and grab the book and everything else good. Yeah. So thank you for raising that. Yeah. The Evolving Leader Podcast, my podcast partner and I meet with neuroscientists and psychologists and professors and coaches from elite sport and people from the business world. And we're really committed to pushing the leadership conversation in a more complete way that's free from any sort of platitudes and sort of trite advice that you tend to get in the leadership space. So we're really trying to come at it more holistically. And it's been a lot of fun. We've been doing it for just over two and a half years, and we've had quite a bit of success with it. So you can find us on anywhere you listen to your podcast. And you can find me. I'm on Instagram under uh, scott.allender, but I also have, and there's a link tree to it as well, but I post uh, Enneagram content pretty frequently on an Instagram account called EQ Enneagram. I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter, and you can just go to scottallender.com if you want to get more information about the book. Perfect. Thank you for listing all that out. I will make sure to list all those and the links in the show notes for this episode. So you don't need to go do digging and, you know, I want to, I want to connect with Scott. He was really great on that show. You can find it all right there. So Scott, I, I honestly can't wait to have you back because I think that this is just scratching the surface in a lot of ways. And I think we can really dive into a deeper dive, as I said earlier, deeper Dovin, uh, into the topic <laughs> <laughs> trademark, Dovin. uh, in the future. So Scott, thank you so much for being here. It's been awesome talking with you. Thank you so much. This has been delightful and I'd love to come back. So, uh, anytime. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Scott Allender as much as I did recording it. And I hope that if you were unaware of these topics of the Enneagram or emotional intelligence, that you found an entry point into one or both of those, and especially the way that they're connected. But not only that, I hope that if you were familiar with one or the other, that you were able to latch on to a new one that will add on to your understanding and your perspective on whichever one you were already familiar with. And if you were familiar with both, like I was to a certain extent, I hope that this conversation furthered your understanding like it did for me. If any of those things are true, I know it's going to help somebody else if you do me and someone else that favor of sharing this episode with them. Think of that person and hit the share button wherever you're listening to this or head on over to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com and share it from there. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you again for listening and I will see you next episode.